Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WAB in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Hall County Public School Superintendent William Schofield joins me. Now tomorrow's day one is students, educators, and staff begin this new school year. And Superintendent Schofield talks about the COVID-19 safety protocols that are in place and why the mask will be optional. Also, later in the program, what if your yard could take care of itself? That would be great, right? Well, I'll speak with a landscape designer who's helping homeowners turn their yards into self-sustaining ecosystems. Now, these are conversations we know that matter to you, the community, so coming up, We'll have all of that. But first, this, as you just heard, the Biden administration's White House COVID response team held its weekly press briefing today. The main message wasn't anything new that y'all haven't heard before. CDC Executive Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky detailed the increasing spike in cases due to the Delta variant. Yesterday, CDC reported 103,444 new cases of COVID-19. Our seven-day average is about 89,463 cases per day. This represents an increase of 43% from the prior seven-day average. And she also talked about hospitalizations and deaths. The seven-day average of hospital admissions is about 7,348 per day, an increase of about 41% from the prior seven-day period. And seven-day average daily deaths have also increased to 381 per day. Dr. Walensky added 83% of the nation's counties are experiencing a moderate or high transmission of the Delta variant. Meanwhile, here in Georgia, the numbers are telling the increase in COVID-19 new cases and hospitalizations compared to June are drastically different. At the time of this broadcast, there have been more than 31,000 new cases reported by the State Department of Public Health within the last two weeks. Also, 3,000 new cases within the last 24 hours. Also, according to the state's vaccine dashboard, Georgia is now at a 41 percent fully vaccination rate. In other news, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis, Fulton County Sheriff Patrick Labatt and acting U.S. Attorney Kurt Erskine for the Northern District of Georgia. Well, they all will be coming together this afternoon to give an update regarding the ongoing investigation and recent murder of Catherine Janice at Piedmont Park. Now, earlier this week, investigators released security camera images of folks that they would like to talk to who might be able to provide any information. And finally, the Tokyo 2020 Olympics will be winding down. Hope you all have been enjoying all the competition. I myself have enjoyed the skateboarding. Pretty cool. Lots of Georgia ties from swimming to track and field. The United States leads all nations in the overall medal count, but China is first with the most gold. So everybody having a good time. You're listening to Closer Look.
Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Hall County is north of Atlanta and includes cities you may have heard of, Buford, Flowery Branch, Gainesville, just to name a few. Well, tomorrow, Hall County public school students, teachers and staff all return for day one of the new school year. Now, we know school districts have been implementing their own COVID-19 protocols. And, of course, a major question has been mask mandates or not. And we've been inviting area superintendents to the program to talk about the return of the in-person instructions. And so now we head to Hall County and we welcome Hall County School Superintendent Will Schofield. Thanks so much for taking time, Superintendent. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for uh, having me on today, Rose. And I just wish that you'd have had your other guests first because I sure want to know how to have a lawn that I don't have to take (laughs) care of. So I think I'm going to have to cancel my next meeting. There you go. Let's let's begin with here because um, overall, Superintendent Schofield, how are you feeling about tomorrow on that first day? Well, you know, it's interesting. This will be my 22nd year as a superintendent. This Mm will be my 35th opening of schools, and uh, I've never been more excited. I've never felt that there's a greater need for boys and girls to be in school, to be getting those supportive relationships and to be moving forward based on what they've been through the last uh, year and a half or so. So we are extremely excited and we are we are ready to go tomorrow. And how many students uh, roughly in your district? We have approximately 28,000 students uh, that go to uh, 37 different school facilities here in Hall County. You know, I watched your most recent video address to the district and you talked about receiving messages from parents who said, if you mandate mask, my child won't come back. If you don't have a mask mandate, my child won't be back. What did you make of all that, Superintendent? Well, I, I guess what I made of it more than anything is I've, I've lived long enough to be able to say this, and that is I cannot remember a time uh, in my life that this nation has been faced with a crisis. And let's just be honest, a, uh, a pandemic uh, having to do with COVID is a crisis. And my experience up until the last couple of years has been that we've always looked for common ground. We've found a way to come together. Uh, We've showed what's best uh, in America and in the American dream. And I just have been uh, dismayed, to say the least, uh, that that people seem to be choosing a side uh, when it comes to uh, this pandemic. But uh, that that was the main message that I get out of those various correspondence I have. Before we get into the the implementation of, of what you're all going to do with masks. Let's take our listeners through what went into it. My most superintendents have been telling me the same thing. We have been following the science. We've been talking with the state department of public health, our county public health departments. What went into the decision for you all um, in coming up with your protocols for the school year? Well, since the beginning, of course, we've relied on local data. We've, uh, we've looked all over the globe. Uh, for for areas that have gone through what we're going through now and tried to learn those lessons. Uh, We we have certainly now got 19 months of on the ground experience with working with COVID on a day by day basis. 
contact tracing, mitigating, uh, seeing what has worked, what has not worked. And so it's a very local decision. And I think the military has a saying that they like to be uh, rigidly flexible. And, and that's where we are. We are we are rigidly flexible. We know that individuals do not do well uh, in times of chaos and uncertainty. And so we try to give people as much notice as we can uh, with a great big asterisk that says if local conditions change, mm -hmm. uh, we will change our practices. And so for our listeners who may not be aware of what is the mask protocol for all county schools starting tomorrow? And let's talk a little bit, if I can, Rose, mm -hmm. about the background of, of masks. And sure. that is, again, you, you said there's a lot of individuals, and I hear it often in media, we're following the science, we're following the science. Well, I, I guess I've forgotten what science is, and so what I'd rather use today is that what we follow is the facts. And, and here are some of the facts that lead us to the decision uh, that we're at as of uh, August the 5th in the Hall County School District. Number one, uh, there are all kinds of studies out now, whether you want to go to New York State, North Carolina, whether you want to go to Norway or Sweden, that would suggest that up till this point, schools have not been a vector for the spread of COVID. Uh, that is whether students have been masked or whether they have been unmasked, that the vectors for the spread of COVID have been community-based, not school-based. Well, that being said, well, then you're saying you don't believe in masks. No, we believe in masks and we know that they reduce spread. Uh, if, to say that if I have the flu and you stand six inches away from me or six feet, your, your odds of getting the flu are the same is Pollyannish and silly. Of course, masks reduce the spread. But here's what we know in our particular area. Mm -hmm. As of today, we have zero, that is zero pediatric hospitalizations from COVID. We know that the overwhelming majority of youngsters who get COVID develop uh, cold-like symptoms. And here's the other thing we know, again, based on facts, and these are facts from studies, as well as walking through schools the last 18 months, youngsters' mental health is not well, uh, and we hear from parents on a daily basis. So we will start mask optional, um, and we will watch the numbers. What's your response, Superintendent Schofield, someone says, well, the facts have to also come from the science, because where else are you going to get your data from? And how confident are you, though, that even if right now in Hall County, as you state, there are no pediatric cases? Now, are you talking about there are no hospitalizations in terms of pediatric cases or just pediatric cases, period? We had, there are no pediatric hospitalizations. Uh, as a matter of fact, three years ago, we had more hospitalizations with pediatrics from the flu uh, than we currently have in Metro Atlanta from COVID. Um, those are facts. That is science. And, and that is what we follow. One thing that uh, the nation's top health officials have said, and obviously it's the CDC, and, is that the, the reason why they did change some of the guidance on the mass mandates, uh, Superintendent Cofield, was because... The virus changed, and you just admitted yourself this is something that none of us have dealt with. You have said, you just said, you wanted everyone to know that, listen, if things change, we will have to make changes according to that. Have you talked about with your district or with your district officials, what would those changes mean? I've heard superintendents say, well, it depends on the number of cases per 100,000 folks. Well, you know, you guys, I think Hall County has a little bit over what? 210,000 folks, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So what metric are you going to use then? Well, and it's and that's, again, an interesting call. Quite honestly, that that, that would make a difference. But mm -hmm. the, the number that we're really interested in after 18 months 
we've had times when we've had in individual schools with as many as uh, 10, 11, 12 COVID cases at one time. But because of our detailed contact tracing, uh, we could come with assurance to believe that 11 of those 12 cases were from family members and had absolutely nothing to do with school spread. Uh, that did not lend itself to being a situation where you would make changes at a school level. We've had other schools where maybe we've had three or four cases, and it had to do with some, some faulty practices at some of our schools. By the way, generally those were extracurricular teams, mm -hmm. um, and, and we had to shore those up immediately. So we've seen almost no clusters in our school district over 18 months of students giving it to each other uh, in classroom and regular school settings. So that's, that's pretty strong science for us. Again, that may change, but when we know that there are also downsides to masking students, uh, that's where we've landed as of today. When you say downsides to masking students, and I noticed you also mentioned on your district website, you talked about mental health. You even mentioned suicide. Uh, I take that further for our listeners. That is a major concern for you, the mental health of the students, because you feel masking is, is a hindrance, is somehow connected to that. I just want to be fair here. But without a doubt, masking is. And, and, and there again, you can look at uh, some of the strongest evidences coming out of Germany, Germany with as many as 18,000 families uh, that, that reported significant increases in isolation and depression. Uh, in suicidal uh, ideations. Uh, we're gonna see the same thing. We'll write about this pandemic for the next 50 years, and it won't all be about epidemiology. It will be about uh, the chaos, the anxiety, the depression that came along with it. And, and I would suggest walking through schools and talking to families the last 18 months, some of that greatest anxiety, some of that greatest depression has been borne by some of our youngest students. And that is tremendously unfortunate and it's real. As far as educators, as far as bus drivers, and I know there's a federal mandate in terms of buses, but as far as educators, it's also an option for them in terms of mask as well? Absolutely. And uh, you know, we've, we've had uh, a long time now where most adults uh, have had an opportunity to be vaccinated. Um, I certainly would suggest that you ought to look at the data and you've got to have a pretty good reason with you and your health provider not to be vaccinated. Um, and so again, do we make decisions that are detrimental to children because adults have made the decision not to be vaccinated? Uh, we're, we're less and less inclined to do that any longer in the Hall County School District. When you look at some of the vaccination rates, for example, here in Bear With Me, we know that Fulton County continues obviously to have a higher vaccination rate than the state average. Yet the majority of schools there are again requiring masks at you know at forty seven percent. Now, your district, did you think about requiring masks because of where you all on on an average you're below the state's vaccination rate? Have you all looked at that? Was that did that go into your decision maybe? Absolutely. We've we've considered all that and uh, and again uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of Metro Atlanta uh, are wearing masks. 11 of the 12 school districts that we border are not requiring masks. And so what we looked at was, again, the fact that uh, what is it going to take to get individuals that are eligible to be vaccinated to protect themselves and get out and be vaccinated? And as a school district, we have very little control over that. We can put out information, we can plead, we can beg, but at the end of the day, uh, individuals have to make their own decisions. And if those decisions are impacting our youngsters in a negative way, um, 
that's just extremely unfortunate. A moment ago when you talked about receiving those messages from parents, you know, based on whether you're going to have a mask mandate or not, for those parents who said, I'm not going to send my child back if you do not have a mask mandate in place, how did you respond to them? Um, once again, uh, isn't it great that we live in a country where we can make those decisions for ourselves and for our own families? For 35 years, I've been reminding educators that uh, moms and dads, aunts and uncles, foster parents, those are the primary educators of our children. And I have a great deal of respect for any decision uh, that an individual makes regarding their own children. My job is to try to collectively make a decision that is best for the vast majority of 28,000 boys and girls. And those are often not the same decision. As it relates to sports, I'm a big sports fan. I think you are too. Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of teams, are you all monitoring that? Are you requiring coaching staff that are suggesting that they get vaccinated? Because, you know, it, it's hard. You can't social distance when you're trying to run uh, a wingtip offense in football. You know that. So, you know, what are you, what's your protocol there? Absolutely. It's the same strong encouragement for all of our people uh, involved in those activities. And when we talk about the, the total child, the whole child uh, and their well-being, uh, again, we didn't need a pandemic to know that a young lady who's highly involved in a music program and on her basketball team tends to be in a much better place academically, emotionally, socially uh, than someone who is isolated. So, so absolutely, we believe that those extracurriculars are important. It is hard to uh, to slow down the contact between two kids uh, playing football with each other. And so, again, we're just monitoring those on a daily basis. And Superintendent Schofield in Hall County, you have a sizable Latino, pop Hispanic and Latino population. We also know that when it comes to, first of all, when it was not only this, the vaccinations, but also in terms of contracting the virus, we know there was the virus. We know there was an overwhelming higher percentage among black and brown communities. You have students, obviously, in your district uh, of, from those populations. What concerns do you have then? Because you talked about, yes, you want parents to make the decision, but when all these kids of all different ethnicities and backgrounds and cultures come together, they're all in one school. So do you consider that, too, considering that you have populations who might be at a, a, a higher percentage of contracting the virus? Well, once again, uh, we didn't see significant uh, differences between demographics of our students that had COVID last year. Uh, and again, I would go back to the uh, most powerful uh, piece of, of data, piece of science that we looked at. And that is whether a child was Latino or whether a child was Caucasian or whether a child was black, uh, they tended to have extremely mild uh, symptoms uh, and they were back in school within a week, 10 days. And so Certainly we would consider that. Uh, we talk with a lot of our local industries, which hire a lot of those individuals on a daily basis. My last call was at seven o'clock this morning. Mm -hmm. One of our local poultry plants with 4,200 uh, employees had four individuals showing positive with COVID. They feel very good about where they are with uh, those employees who are the parents of a lot of our students. Uh, and so we try to keep take a pulse uh, of, of, of parents of community uh, of industries that uh, that our families come from, and again at this time, I'm just I'm just not seeing a lot of those uh, significant significant differences. The district has stated that you all are quote witnessing a record learning loss because of the pandemic. These first few weeks in school, 
you know, besides welcoming back the students and getting them used to that routine, but at some point you're going to have to do some assessment here, correct, for your, all of your students to see where they are. Well, and, and we were doing that assessment all last year. And, uh, and again, my, my background was a, was a high school mathematics teacher, but I know the most important thing that we do as a school district is teach young children to read, write, speak, listen, literacy skills well. Um, so what we really have been dialing into over the last year is where are our children with literacy? Where are those gaps? What can we do to put uh, more resources into those areas? We were thankful for the CARES funds that came out that we were able to hire more teachers, create more small groups, create a number of summer programs and extend that learning time. Uh, but let's just be real honest if we want to talk about taking care of children. Mm -hmm. uh, give, give me a child from poverty that gets two years behind in their literacy skills. Uh, they never catch up. What does research say it takes? Three years? No. A child from a poverty home that falls two years behind in literacy never catches up. So, so some of these areas that children have been in their basements for the last two years uh, that have fallen further and further behind, uh, again, I will suggest we will write and do studies about this generation for a long time, and, and it won't all have to do uh, with the physical effects of COVID. Do you have wraparound services? Do you feel you have adequate wraparound services then for those students who are in those in those poverty pockets, those pockets of poverty that we've talked about so many times on this program, but in the last, it seems like, 100 years in this nation? Mm -hmm. Do you have wraparound services for those students? The needs are overwhelming. We will never have enough, was your mm -hmm. key word, of wraparound services, but we have doubled down for the last three years in our district on training every individual who works for us uh, with trauma and mental health skills. We, we want our people, whether it's a tier one, and that would be all 3,400 team members, or whether it's tier two with small groups for those students who just need a little more, or whether it's tier three with outside providers, uh, we are working until our fingers bleed to try to meet those social emotional needs of our students uh, quite candidly. It is overwhelming, and if we thought it was bad two years ago, um, the top has blown off uh, over the last 18 months. We're seeing studies that suggest anywhere from a 200 to 400% increase in mental illness for our elementary age children. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that, that ought to be reason for pause for anyone uh, who's looking after the next generation. As we wrap up, Superintendent Schofield, those parents who told you they weren't going to send their kids back, and are you going to make, will the district make some effort? To, and I know you're keeping count in terms of your population, but will you send letters to those students who maybe don't show up this the first full week? And will you say, look, you know, we want you to come back. What, it, what, will you, what do you think you need to do to get those parents to send their kids back? Well... First, I don't think we'll have many of those students, but mm -hmm. uh, whatever the reason, if someone is dissatisfied with our school district, we are going to continually uh, communicate with those individuals. What can we do better? Even if you choose not to bring them back, they're still our students. They belong to this community. How can we support you as a family? How can we support this community in taking care of the youngsters? Uh, you know, it, we used to believe that it would be amazing what we could get done if we quit worrying about who gets the credit. Um, all of the boys and girls in Hall County are, are our boys and girls, and we'll reach out to those families. We're always here. If they change their mind in a month, we've, we've got open arms, and we'd love to have you back. Uh, but I just don't think there'll be many of those in Hall County. How early are you getting up tomorrow morning? 
<laughs> I'm not sure I'll fall asleep tonight, Rose. I'll tell you what, you think 35 years into this thing, you, uh, you'd, you'd sleep like a baby. And I guess I do. I wake up every two hours and I cry. So uh, I'll be getting up early. Uh, I'll be getting out to some bus stops. I'll be reminding on the radio for drivers to slow down. You've got some five-year-olds that are going to be out at bus stops for the first time in their lives. Uh, and those beautiful youngsters are our most precious resource. So, uh, so I'll be up bright and early and looking forward uh, to the day. Nothing like kindergarten that first day, I tell you. Uh, nothing, <laughs> what would you give to go back to kindergarten again? My goodness. I don't know. You need to ask my kindergarten teacher <laughs> whether, whether or not she would want me back. <laughs> By the way, I had a wonderful uh, kindergarten teacher, Mrs. Buford Hickey Elementary School in St. Louis, Missouri. Hall County School mm-hmm. Superintendent Will Schofield, thank you so much for taking the time. Superintendent, we're going to check back with you all and see how things are progressing throughout the school year. Thank you. Thank you and have a great day. And I wish nothing but the best for all of our neighbors as they begin school also. Thank you, Rose. Thank you. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. You know, this music bed, bring it up a little bit more, Kevin. It reminds me of a Coen Brothers movie. Just kind of has that feel. What, what do you think, Kevin? Daniel, producer? Daniel shaking his head, yes. You never know what you're going to get out of here. That's <laughs> Closer Look continues, Kevin. <laughs> ah, focus, Rose. Here's a quote. Quote, we exist to empower people to be part of the solution to the global environmental crisis we face. Close quote. No doubt it's a core philosophy of our next guest, Brandy Hall and her team over at Shades of Green Permaculture. And I was immediately drawn in when I saw goats on their Instagram. You want to be on this program? Goats, pictures of goats, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You're in. That's pretty much it pictures of goats. Brandy Hall, welcome to the program. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Rose. Well, let's begin with the goats. What's up with the goats? Oh, the goats. Um, So our house, much like probably many people live around Atlanta, uh, all of the property surrounding our yard was covered with English ivy. Mm -hmm. And I walk outside and get eaten alive by mosquitoes every summer. and so this spring, we decided to have goats come in, and we did, we formed a partnership with the city of Pine Lake, which is the neighboring property on one side and a mm-hmm. neighbor on the back side, um, had the goats come in and eat all of the ivy and kind of get in front of the mosquitoes for the summer. So they came for a house. They came to our house for about two weeks, <laughs> and my four-year-old daughter was just over the moon, waking up at like. 5 a.m. every morning with her mud boots on, like ready to go feed the goats. <laughs> That's a great story. That's a great story. Well, let's, well, speaking of a great story, I love a good backstory. Um, before we get into Shades of Green, I talked about the philosophy that you all have in terms of empowering people to be a part of the solution to the global environmental crisis we face. Let's take that further. Through your lens, at the core, when we talk about this environmental crisis we face, are we paying enough attention? Are folks, they know it exists, but it's like, what can I do? Where are you in all of that? 
Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, I can talk about my own relationship to it. It feels often really daunting. And I think that, um, you know, much of the solutions that are posed are really outside of our control. They're policy solutions, they're global collaborations that are needed. They're things that feel really big. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things that we strive really hard to do is bring it back to the person. Like there are things that we can do in our own yards, in our own landscapes, in our own gardens, in our own lives, and how we spend our dollars and how we like manage our waste and our house. There's things that we can do um, that really make a huge difference and that we can be part of that solution. We don't have to wait for the top down solutions. So in other words, if everyone, each of us as individuals, even did a little bit, it would make a huge difference in terms of this environmental crisis that we're facing that you've been talking about. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. What is the backstory of Shades of Green Permaculture? How did all this come about? Oh, very circuitously. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I guess it kind of, there was a juxtaposition early on in my childhood where I grew up between South Florida in the ag lands, the ornamental plants and the canals that are draining the swamp and all the things and Western North Carolina where my dad lives, very pristine wilderness and waterfalls and mountain lakes and just kind of seeing those two landscapes really juxtaposed. And my mom and my stepdad, when I was young, Mm -hmm. um, they ran an ornamental plant nursery and seed company. And I saw them slowly over the course of my childhood become poisoned by the exposure to toxic chemicals, pesticides Mm. and herbicides and fungicides. Um, To the point that one time my mom was having an anaphylactic response to just having smelled a neighbor spray their fields. Mm -hmm. Um, They picked me up on the way to the hospital and she convulsed so hard that her, that she shook the door panel off of the car um, and was on her way to having a stroke just from her anaphylaxis. And, mm. you know, shortly after that, they, my parents moved to North Florida and detoxified and went through a seven year cleanse and went all organic. And, um, so I think that made a huge impression kind of early on and set me on, set me on a path of there's gotta be another way this, you know, just intuitively as a child, knowing that this isn't, this doesn't seem right, you know? And so with shades uh, of green, yeah, so with Shades of Green, I studied building and got a general contractor's license and then finally took a permaculture design course at some point in my early adulthood and realized that all of these things come together in whole systems way of thinking, like how we do our food, mm-hmm. how we do energy, how we build, you know, all of these things kind of weave together. And that was sort of the the birth of Shades of Green. And for our listeners who are saying, well, Brandy, you and Rose have talked about this permaculture. I don't know what that is. Yeah. So permaculture is an ethical design science. It is guided by the ethics of nature, Mm -hmm. which are take care of one another, um, care for the earth, care for our communities, share the abundance. These things that we see play out in natural systems. Um, We don't see them play out so often in human systems, but... Um, So it's an ethical design science that takes into account these values Mm -hmm. and um, seeks to integrate humans with the natural surroundings. So rather than thinking of ourselves as we have this yard and then we have 
we're the humans and we're very separate from these. We we try to integrate through permaculture, mm-hmm. um, meeting our needs from the land that we steward. So growing food and, um, you know, providing fiber and herbal medicine and all these all these kinds of things, while also making a positive impact on um, the ecosystem itself. So it's a philosophy followed with actual outcomes, action. Yes, absolutely. And someone says, okay, now I'm going to call Shades of Green, and then you're all going to tell me what. I'm going to say, hey, you want to come out? Will you assess my land? What will you do? What do people mostly call you all for? So the most of our work, especially this year, um, with people being at home more and seeing the states of their yards and wanting to spend more time outside, um, is residential. So what people do, they give us a call and they say, I've got a number of issues, whatever is the reason that they're calling. I want to grow more food. I want to overhaul my landscape. I want to deal with this drainage issue that mm-hmm. has been compounding with heavy rains and all these things. Um, and so then what we would do is we would have a consultation with them, with a designer, walk through, look at their site, get a sense of their vision and their goals. And um, then we come out as a design team and we do a site analysis. So one of the differentiations I think of permaculture from other types of, of landscape design specifically is it's very responsive to the existing conditions. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to just impose like, okay, this is what needs to be here. We're sure. really reading the context and and what's happening with the light and what's happening, what kind of existing vegetation is there and what, what's the soil like and where's the water going and um, all of these things that we can respond to that with a design. Do you notice a difference in the soil in terms of different parts of the Atlanta region? Absolutely. Um, it's, it is influenced a lot by like where you are topographically, like mm-hmm. if you're higher up in the Piedmont or if you're lower, closer to a river basin or a creek. Um, but a lot of, you know, we see variations in clay versus sand. Mm-hmm. You know, it's usually somewhere on that spectrum. Um, and then also the amount of organic matter. Some people really don't have much topsoil, you know, if it's post-construction or um, it's a lot of it's eroded and then other sites just have a lot more topsoil. So the voice to work with. <laughs> I understand that the voice you hear is Brandy Hall and she's talking about shades of green permaculture. Now, I'm curious because when we talked about we promote this and we talked about this and, you know, it's very easy. We, we borrowed a, the quote that I believe was in Atlanta magazine. In other words, getting your yard to work for yourself. And I think that caught a lot of people's attention. Like, OK, that's great. What are some of the most common concerns or questions you get from folks about not only, look, we all want to have a nice groovy lawn or or land, but but we also want to make sure that we are not harming it. So is there often somewhere in the middle folks are saying, what should I do? I'm lost because I'm told don't use pesticides. Don't plant this because you're, you're messing with the bees. You know, we love our honeybees. So I'm curious, what are those common questions that you get? And by the way, I'm not anti-honeybees. Don't send me an email, folks. I love <laughs> I love the bees. I know that we need them. So Totally. We get a lot of questions. A lot of people, you know, depends on the season. In the wintertime, especially the last few years, we've had so many inches of rain mm-hmm. for months on end. And so we get a lot of people calling because they have drainage problems. And they know that there's some way that they can work with their rainwater as an asset because then here comes summer, most summers where it's really hot and dry. And then all of a sudden you have to irrigate a lot. Um, so we get a lot of questions about working with water. We get a lot of questions about 
native and edible plants. A lot of people that want to grow, you know, grow food and they don't necessarily want to have a big vegetable garden where mm -hmm. they're planting it every year. They want to have more of a perennial landscape with fruit trees and berries and things like that. And then also supporting, supporting pollinators like the honeybees, like you were just talking about through native plants and having drought resistant landscapes. That's a big, a big thread. And, and Brittany also, can you do this and not, and maybe you have a budget in mind. I mean, can folks achieve all this and, and maybe, maybe they don't have the means to probably put it, put in some type of nice irrigation system or whatever, what have you. So can you do this and, and folks not have to spend a whole lot of money? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, where the prices for things go up is when you're starting to pull in a lot of different materials. You're doing hardscaping and retaining walls and concrete and this and that. And everybody don't need all that is what you're saying. You don't. Yeah, you really don't <laughs> need all that. And I think that's like really a benefit of responsive design is you can have a landscape that is beautiful and thriving and has tons of flowers and producing a ton of food and not really have to put a ton of inputs into it. I mean, you can, it really also depends on how quickly, you know, we come from a, a culture that wants what it wants right now, mm -hmm. immediately. And, you know, these types of landscapes are a little bit of like slow landscaping movement, you know, like let things evolve and let things grow into place. And then you can use the plant material and propagate and and move things around and you can do it over time definitely and, and do you all also work with commercial properties as well mm -hmm. we do um we've worked with cities we've worked with schools we've worked with business owners um yeah so these these types of landscapes are productive and uh, they're carbon sinks and they manage stormwater and i think they benefit uh, any type of land Next week, we're going to have a couple of days where we talk about Georgia's climate and sort of the, the, you know, the past, the present and the future. And when we talk about just the environment overall, and, and we'll, we'll focus here on the Atlanta area. Um, overall, we move in the right direction in terms of sustainability, but, but also people's mindsets, you know, because whenever there's a new development that's coming online, there's always concerns about, okay, well, what's the sustainability plan of this project? And, you know, do this mm -hmm. different cities, they may have different ordinances or different, you know, provisions as it relates to new development. How would you assess how we're doing in this region? That's a really good question. I think there are areas that we're doing well, and there are areas where we can certainly improve. And I've seen a lot of strides, even over the last decade of you know, like stormwater management, for instance, there's the infiltrate the first inch of rainwaters part of the Atlanta building codes now. And mm -hmm. that goes a really long way. Um, and, you know, we're also getting more and more heavy storms. Like we just had six and a half inches of rain a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. you know, in one in 24 hours, which is a major rain event. Um, and so we're seeing that more as climate's as climate is changing. And so I think it really comes down to how quickly can we, how quickly can we respond, you know, and there's definitely a huge movement toward managing water and planting native plants and tree ordinances are beginning, are getting more protective. So I think we're starting collectively to see the value of these things that are really irreplaceable, you know, recompense for trees, you know, when you cut one down and then you plant another one, mm -hmm. they're seeing it's not, it's not apples to apples, you know, planting a two inch oak 
is not the same as taking out a 45 inch oak, you know. Well, let's let's so. talk about that for a moment because we know that concerns about Atlanta's tree canopy. And by the way, Atlanta has a beautiful tree canopy. Let's be really clear about this. Atlanta is a mm-hmm. city in a forest. Uh, what concerns do you have moving forward about that aspect of Atlanta? And, and mm-hmm. look, we know that when you build stuff, you have to, I don't know if you have to, I don't want to say that because I'll get an email. When they build stuff, sometimes they <laughs> knock down that 45-year-old oak or that 100-year-old oak, and then people say, okay, yeah, therein lies the problem. Is there a happy medium here? Is there a compromise? I think there is. I mean, I think one of the things that happens is it's it's really easy, ultimately. You know, a lot of times with development, there it's almost built into the front-end cost. So like, okay, we can, we're going to take out this tree, and then we're going to have to pay a fee because we took that out. Um, so I think municipalities are tightening that up a little bit. They're seeing like actually that, you know, we want to make it even harder for you to cut down this legacy tree um, because it takes so long for it to regenerate. Wood isn't, you know, it's a regenerative resource and it takes time. Um, and on the flip side of that, you know, from a sustainability, like a regional sustainability standpoint, it, you know, there's a lot of argument for high density infill, mm-hmm. you know, housing so that we're not just having kind of expansive sprawl, mm-hmm. um, which regionally would have more of an impact. So, you know, I think that there's, I think it's really hard when we put the system that we live in mm-hmm. wants to, wants to just put a dollar sign on all the different elements, you know, a tree, it's going to cost this much to take it out. It becomes sort of a commodity of some, of some sort. And I think that part of the shift of consciousness is really just seeing that there, there's this life that we're part of and that is really essential to sustaining us. And it's not so much about the dollar sign. <laughs> and Brandy, I have an email from a listener that wants to know, and they, I'm pretty sure I may know the answer to this, but do you recommend using any type of pesticides for one's lawn or garden? And I, I this is your not. through your lens, so I don't know if there are any yeah. what they call eco friendly <laughs> pesticides. I'll get an email anyway, so you do not. Yeah, the, we don't recommend. Um, there are some natural sprays. I actually just put out a. Um, we get a question all the time about managing mosquitoes, um, and how do you do that without spraying herbicides or pest, you know, or pesticides, not herbicides. Um, and so I just put out a course recently called Mosquito- Managing Mosquitoes Naturally, and it's all about you know, all the things you can do to, for your site conditions to make it so it's not favorable for mosquitoes and some natural spray options um, that are mostly, mostly like a surfactant that helps the spray adhere to leaves of things and then essential oils. Um, but even essential oils, you know, they have volatile organic compounds in them mm-hmm. and they, chemicals aren't discriminant generally you know if you're spraying it and it's it gets rid of mosquitoes and spiders and all these things you don't want but then it oh it magically doesn't do anything to the bees or the butterflies well let me ask you this because you can go into any of of the in the garden supply area of your your favorite place where you go and you see natural organic how do folks they see that think oh this is organic this is natural how can folks what should they be looking for to make sure that indeed it is i guess organic or natural Mm-hmm. You've seen that, I'm um, sure. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really, you know, there are a lot of 
words that are not regulated very heavily, like <laughs> like natural or sustainable. or um, So I think it really comes down to- Won't kill your dog. I mean- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, can you eat it? I don't know. <laughs> um, I My approach typically is an innocent or guilty until proven innocent. Um, you know, like the, <laughs> the, uh, the pesticides that my folks were spraying, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. they were at some point sold just in the hardware store. Sure. And then even now they're very minimally regulated by the EPA. And we're finding out, you know, decades later, some of the things they don't have the effects until decades later. So we don't really have the data, I think. So I think err on the side of caution and diversify. You know, then your need for pesticides and herbicides really diminishes greatly when you're building a resilient landscape that has lots of biodiversity and works with stormwater and has a lot of native um, native habitat for songbirds and pollinators and cuts out the need for those things. And real quickly, before we say goodbye, Pam has a question. She wants to know what's a very simple, easy. Please ask what's a very simple and easy edible plant to grow. Now, I guess this may depend oh. on, too, the, the, you know, whether or not you have a lot of sun or a lot of shade. So I'm not sure what, yeah, what totally. Pam's yard is like. But what can you offer? We can grow so many things here. There are um, pomegranates and figs and hazelnuts and blueberries and blackberries. Pomegranates, and really? Pomegranate. No. Yeah. Really? Yeah. We just posted something on our Instagram account yesterday of a pomegranate that we harvested from a client. This house is like as big as my head. Like a bona fide pomegranate. <laughs> oh, there's so many, so many incredible things. Pears and apples and peaches and plums and all kinds of berries and asparagus and horseradish. And I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. <laughs> when we started this question, when we started this interview and we talked about your philosophy, where do you hope you see uh, shades of green in, in the future here, Brandy? Oh, that's such a great question. <laughs> um, it's what I do. I get one yeah, or two in every every professional every here. <laughs> <laughs> this is such a public oh. radio conversation right now. It's just kind of weird. Go ahead. That's awesome. Where do I see us? You know, I I our goal really is to just have as much impact to help empower people with solutions. And so um, we've expanded into online digital courses so that we have more geographic reach and we're scaling, you know. Every day it feels like we're scaling. We're now up to a staff of almost 20 people. Um, so I really think it's, for us, it's just about increasing our reach and really mm-hmm. like helping people understand that there's so many things that we can do um, and just being a, a go-to resource for that. We're going to have you come out to our uh, lovely campus here of Public Broadcast in Atlanta and we'll, we'll find something to plant. What do you think? That sounds great. I'd love that. <laughs> Brandy Hall, Shades of Green Permaculture. Thank you so much for taking time. I really appreciate it. When you get those goats back, please let us know. I will. Thank you so much, Rose. Take care, Brandy. Bye. Tell us what you'd like to grow in your garden or wherever you live let us know rose at wabe.org that's it for this edition of closer look if you missed any of today's program it's online at wabe.org slash closer look just music and you can also listen to closer look weeknights at 7 p.m as well as in our podcast
Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 Atlanta Shorts NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.